morning. <laughs> All right, so our scripture this morning is from Acts 15. We'll be reading verses 1 through 21. So if you'd like to use your pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 923. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Thanks, Lauren. Well, throughout church history, there have been a number of significant gatherings, councils. And just to maybe highlight a few, you think of Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, that produced the Nicaean Creed that's still recited today amongst many believers and in certain specific denominations quite often, uh, proclaiming and articulating the Trinity very clearly. The Council of Constantinople, at least the first one, there was another, uh, 381, emphasized the full divinity and humanity of Jesus. 
Think of the Westminster Council or Assembly in 1643 that really continued in different gatherings throughout, throughout the next decade that reformed the England, England church and it produced the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Catechism. And we could go on and highlight other significant gatherings of the church, the capital C church, throughout the centuries. But I would argue that none is more significant than this one in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, circa AD 50. John Calvin, who himself uh, was accustomed to councils, there was a famous one in Geneva that he took part in, I think Calvin would agree. He said this bold statement. He said, if Paul had yielded here, Christianity would have come to nothing. It's pretty powerful. And what was the issue? Why were they counseling? Circumcision? Only on the surface. That was supposed to be a joke, pastor's joke, but I just couldn't resist. <laughs> the deeper issue is salvation and how one is saved. It is by grace alone and Christ alone through faith alone, or is it salvation through obedience to the law? What's the path to God's salvation now that Jesus has come? And this is a little more subtle. It's not just the traditional works-based legalistic salvation versus grace alone. It is subtle because you have Jewish followers of Jesus proclaiming salvation in Jesus alone, but in order to be saved and receive Him, you must first, if you are a Gentile, become a Jew. After all, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. That was what was at stake. So there were teachers and loud voices of prominence standing up and proclaiming and even traveling throughout the very same region that the gospel has been expanding on. They've been following on the heels, preaching, yes, but. I know you've experienced something in Jesus and in the power of the Spirit, but you are missing the law and the ceremony of the law. To fully receive Him, you must become a Jew first. And therefore, circumcision and obedience to the ceremonial laws of the Jews. That was what was at stake. And it was pivotal. A significant moment. So much so that Calvin could say, had Paul yielded to those voices, Christianity would have come to nothing. And I don't know that I agree with Calvin in that Strong of a statement, but it would have at least produced a radical split within the church. I think the Antioch church and the churches that had sprung up throughout Galatia likely would have continued proclaiming the gospel of grace. But if Paul had withdrawn from them and stood with these Jewish Christians proclaiming adherence to the law and to circumcision, I can imagine easily those early churches, the greenhouse in Antioch and those other churches, struggling and maybe floundering a bit as they even wrestled with their own connection and engagement with the Scriptures. Imagine that certainly the course of history for the church would have been radically different. So it's a, it's a significant, pivotal moment here that's, that we are invited into by Luke as he describes the events of Acts 15 in this council. And really, I would say not much has changed 
If you'll remember, not too long ago, a few chapters ago, Acts 10, this very same issue was already settled, wasn't it? As Peter had left, the, left Jerusalem and therefore kind of left the Jerusalem church and started preaching amongst the Gentiles, which he gave, gives testimony here, and he went to Caesarea and he preached among Gentile believers and a man, Cornelius, was radically saved in his whole household. And the Holy Spirit descended upon them, very similar, we saw, to what happened in Pentecost about 10 years earlier. And this is Peter's testimony, that he proclaims that God sees the heart of men, and if God poured out His Spirit with no distinction upon these Gentiles, then how dare we put upon them this legalistic requirement of the law, this weight, this yoke upon them that none of us can ultimately fulfill. He said in Acts 10.35, the same kind of statement that we hear him saying again here in Acts 15, God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him is acceptable to him. In Acts 11, he defended that very same statement amongst the circumcision party that Paul would later label these false teachers. He has some pretty harsh words for them in his letter to the Galatian church. In Acts chapter 11, verse 17, Peter says this, if then God gave the same gift to them, these Gentiles, as he's given to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, just as we see happen again here in Acts 15. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So here we are again, taking another lap around the same block. It's about 10 years further, which means we're about now 20 years from Pentecost. What can we say? Religion dies hard. But here in Acts, it gets settled once for all. Never again in the history of the church do men stand up and preach a works-based salvation, a works-based righteousness. If only. That sounded wrong, didn't it? But this is settled. The matter has been settled. Why are we so quick to forget and put back on our salvation, a requirement, a weight of the law. It seems to be kind of the default human condition or belief. If there is a God, our culture, our world, or you and I ask, wrestle with, if there is a God, a higher power, an afterlife, then we must do something clearly to earn His favor, to appease Him, to receive his mercy or pardon or blessing. And the picture is God seated on a throne in his temple upon the mountaintop. That picture is before us through media, through story, but most importantly through our heart which has created it. It makes sense to the condition of our heart. We know at a core that we are lost and flailing. And so we must achieve a higher purpose. And if there is a God and a power, then we must, and who is seated upon that throne, then we must find a path up to Him. 
Likely it will be a grueling path and a grueling climb up the mountain and few will make it. But the most disciplined, the most faithful, the ones that do not give up might ultimately find their way to the doors of that temple. They might, through begging and petition, be invited in and somehow be able to plead their case before this God that they are worthy of His favor, of His pardon, of His blessing. That look at them, they amongst so many have been the ones to make it. They might plead or we might prove our actions, our behaviors, our intentions, our discipline in order to receive. And perhaps one day we will be granted that favor or mercy. Perhaps we won't even know it till our final day when we cross from this life and wonder about the next. Was it enough? This describes the picture of the human heart and condition throughout all generations. The reality is the gospel is wholly other. The gospel proclaims God on high from His throne upon the mountain has come down to men. He's come down from the mountaintop to dwell with men and save them. And furthermore, no one was looking for the path up the mountain. They were collecting shells on the seashore, ignoring the God on high. That's the proclamation of the gospel. And even if men were looking for the path, none could achieve it. There was no path till God Himself came down and made a way. This is what is at stake in Jerusalem in AD 50. This is what they are wrestling with ultimately. How is one saved? We now know Jesus. We see He has come as the Messiah. He has now ascended back to His throne. Is it enough? Is it finished? Or is there now a path through the law of Moses and through ceremony? Or is it by grace through faith alone? That is what is at stake. Ultimately, nothing has still changed. I, you know, I was talking with a friend of mine at Gold's Gym this week, and we're in the locker room, and he said, he leaned over and he said, you know, Ben, someday you need to tell me what it takes to get to heaven. If that's not like a softball, I said, so how about today? <laughs> no, okay, not today, how about tomorrow? We went and got margaritas. <laughs> the thing is, he's asked that a number of times. So over margaritas, essentially, his confession is, you know, I'm just getting tired of being a good person. It's so hard. I, I keep thinking of others and being generous and wanting to serve others, and, and our world is pretty messed up. He didn't say messed, but... And I can resonate with him, but what the reality of his heart cry is, is... I just want to do enough. Haven't I? Please, someone, tell me I am. When so many voices are saying, give up, just look for, out for yourself and stop it. You can't make a difference anyway. So nothing has changed. The heart condition of men, of not just my friend at the gym, but of you and of me, the default is 
I must do enough. Just tell me I've done enough. And even when we have received Jesus the Messiah, we tend to want to build a hierarchy that removes grace to the periphery or keeps it only as the gate instead of living and dwelling in it day in and day out. The power of gospel for the salvation of all. You know, for, for some, in some amazing way, we have come to believe that the equation is Jesus plus something equals everything. When the reality of the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. For some of the Jewish believers in this early church, it was Jesus plus circumcision and ceremony equals everything. For us today, it might be Jesus plus baptism equals everything. Jesus plus the Holy Communion. And by the way, we can define each of those in the right way, through the right ceremony, the right distribution, the right mechanism. Jesus plus Winning souls equals everything. Because unless you are winning souls, then you may not fully have been accepted by God. Jesus plus the Bible equals everything. Jesus plus a denomination. Jesus plus a worship experience or style. And really we can keep going down the list. Jesus plus anything It's a message that we keep on preaching. It's almost like a default to us. When the message of the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that is what is settled in Acts 11 by Peter and now in a more formal way by the whole church and the apostles and the elders. They are unified and they settle the matter. Why do we keep needing to be reminded Why do we keep adding to it and changing it? Warren Wearsby says, this is the legalist, he's a pastor and commentator, the legalist heart. The legalist heart within all of us. It always does this. It always pours new wine into old, brittle wineskins. It stitches up the torn veil. It erects roadblocks to the open way of life. It rebuilds the wall between Jew and Gentile that Jesus broke down. It puts back on the heavy yoke of slavery that Jesus lifted off. It's the condition that's within us all that lurks there. That we must continually proclaim the full freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As they all agreed, as Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James all agreed, and ultimately the whole church said yes and amen. By God's grace, the church didn't split in this moment. It was unified. That's not always the case. That's not always the formula to grace and truth to the power of love equals unity. No, in fact, I'd say more often the formula is grace and truth proclaimed in love does not equal Unity, it equals division. When Jesus experienced that himself, but by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, at this council, in this moment, there is unity. 
and it's so critical and crucial for the church. And we may not agree with Calvin who says Christianity would have come to nothing had they divided at this point, but we could rightly ask how different it would be from the history from 1950 years ago. Would we even be sitting here this morning? We, for the most part, Gentiles by birth, would the legacy and the story and the history that we heard recounted last week, would that have even existed had not unity happened in Acts 15? So critical for the church and then so critical to bring it forward for us today. Let me quickly highlight just the unity we see and call out a couple things as these powerful leaders of the church stand up and give testimony. Peter stands up, reminds them all that essentially it's already been settled. Verse 7, in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of God. Do you remember that we were in agreement that I would go out and preach to the Gentiles? Like Jesus said, remember, remember when he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria even, and to the ends of the earth? So even they needed to remember after a few short years. So God made this. We all agreed. And then God, this is what God did. He knows the heart. He sees within us. We look at the outward. God looks at the heart. And as we preached and bore witness to them, he gave them the Holy Spirit. He poured out upon them just as he did to us. And he cleansed their hearts by faith. You get that? He poured out his spirit. He filled them He saved them. He redeemed them. He cleansed their heart. He forgave them these uncircumcised, not law-abiding, pork-eating Gentiles, just as he did to us. And he goes on to say, verse 10, Now, therefore, why are you trying to put God to the test and place the yoke back on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? No one throughout all history has been able to fulfill the law. And it's been a weight to us. How dare we take that yoke that Jesus took off and cast to the ground and put it back upon the necks of these Gentiles who are coming to Jesus. Don't we see the human pride that exists there? It also lurks within all of us. The, but that's not fair. We've done it throughout all generations. We've followed the law We've rejected following the way of the world. We've remained holy and pure and set apart in all of these ways ceremonially. If we've done it, so should they. We did it. Jesus came to us as our Messiah. Let them also set themselves apart through their behavior and then receive Him. Maybe the most striking thing that Peter says is verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Why is this so striking? Because he flips the tables. So he's going on and making this testimony and proclaiming and see how he switches the order here? Wouldn't we expect this to read? But we believe that they will be saved through the grace of Jesus just as we are. It's not what it says. But we believe that we will be saved just as they are. You see how he reverses the order and he actually puts Jews 
in a posture beneath the Gentiles. He's not saying God also saves Gentiles. Imagine that. He's saying God also saves Jews. That's Peter, the leader of the church as a whole. Maybe that balance of leadership and authority is transitioning to Paul at this point. But Peter still had a powerful testimony. So striking was that statement that just like earlier when he preached, the whole assembly fell silent as they wrestle with that. I wonder how long that silence lasted before Paul stood up and filled it. So Paul and Barnabas stand up and, yes, yes, and amen, Peter. And just to corroborate your testimony, we too went out amongst the Gentiles. In fact, most of you don't even know the story. Let me tell you about what we saw happen as we went through Crete and then up in the region of Galatia and in the cities there. And God kept meeting us and they started recounting the wonder after wonder, the miracle after miracle, and then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, all the experiences they had amongst these heathen Gentiles who knew nothing of the law of Moses, did not obey it or follow it, had not become circumcised, and yet God is pouring out upon them His grace, His mercy, and His power. They corroborate the story in a powerful way. That's all, we're, that's all we're told here, probably because we've seen the message proclaimed and preached. We know the story already of God's work and faithfulness. Not every detail of it, but in more detail than Luke recounts here with this one verse. But it's hard not to think that this was the beginning of the sermon and the beginning of the letter that Paul would write back to the churches in Galatia. I bet he said something like we read there in Galatians chapter 3, verse 5, and then I'll jump to chapter 5 and the first few verses of chapter 5. I've got to believe that this was something of what he stood and proclaimed at that council on that day as he wrote back to these churches in Galatia that still needed to be reminded because these circumcision party members were coming and preaching Jesus plus something equals everything. And so here's what Paul says in Galatians 3 and then 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and who works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? For freedom Christ has set us free. So stand firm then. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts the law that you will be severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you would fall away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. i got to believe that's the same message that he is proclaiming there at the Jerusalem Council. In Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Then finally, James stands up and he brings the gavel down. He says, listen to me. Right now, at this moment, James has the authority of the church. This isn't James the Apostle, the son of Zebedee. He was, he was martyred back in Acts 12. 
This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who would later write a letter that bears his name that we have in Scripture. He's become the leader of the Jerusalem church, likely after Peter went out on the mission to preach the gospel in Judea. James remains. He becomes known as James the Just. Incredible respect and honor given to this man. And when you think about it, his testimony of coming to faith in Jesus probably trumps even Paul's, even Peter's. I mean, when I, when I consider it, James grew up with Jesus. Jesus was his older brother, half-brother, step-brother. He saw Jesus go through puberty. Okay, we're not told many details there, but that was his experience. And in John chapter 7, we're told that James nor his other brothers believed in him. In fact, they went to try to get, to try to, hey, Jesus, you're kind of embarrassing the family. Like, cut, cut it out. It wasn't until after his resurrection, after the, we should pause, after the cross, after he was crucified, that James became a believer in his older brother as the Messiah, as God himself. I'll just ask you, if you have an older brother, what would it take for you to believe that he is God? So James could stand up and kind of end an argument when it came to, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Hey, listen, let me tell you stories about Jesus. They wouldn't be the same kind of stories that we would tell about our brother and sister, but Jesus also was fully man. And for his younger brother to proclaim him as Lord, Savior, Messiah, and God incarnate was a pretty powerful testimony. So James stands up with the respect he's earned amongst the church, one who himself probably leaned to the law and is still fulfilling the ceremonial laws of the Jews, very hard to part yourself from such history and tradition, but he stands up and brings the gavel down and he says, listen to me, and he quotes the words of Amos the prophet, but actually he said more than that. He said, all the prophets agree on this, guys. And who knows how many more places he quoted from or simply chose Amos, but God's promise to save the Gentiles runs throughout the Old Testament and through the prophets, and that's what he's proclaiming. And I love this because Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James, they've all got powerful testimonies. They all corroborate each other. They are all in agreement. But what settles it is God's Word. Is opening up the Scriptures and illuminating them with the power of the Spirit, just as Jesus had taught them to do, that it is all being fulfilled. It's all been done. All the law has been fulfilled And Jesus had said, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. It's been done. Circumcision ceremonies had their place. Jesus came and fulfilled them. It is done upon the cross. By grace we have been saved. Look at the unity in verse 22. It wasn't read. Lauren didn't read it. But verse 22 says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church. They are in full unity. And praise God for that unity. I think of so much disunity in so many contexts, whether it's within the church or 
our community or our workplaces or our schools. I sit on our HOA board. We can argue for meeting after meeting on what shade of blue works with earth tone and when it's too much and still not agree. And in this critical juncture of the church, we've got to say by God's grace alone and the power of the Spirit, there is unity. Why then do we continue to need to be reminded that Jesus plus nothing equals everything? Why did we need a Nicaea, a Constantinople, a Geneva? Why do we need to hear it yet again? Is it because we don't believe it? I think that's a piece of it. When I say we now, I'm speaking of the whole of the church. So include yourself in that. Do we not believe it? Because our whole life we've been told, if it sounds too good to be true, then, I'm going to finish it, <laughs> probably not. Doubt that. Be skeptical of that. And if the gospel, the good news, is this good, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, be skeptical of that. There probably is something that they haven't told you yet. And guess what? If you go looking, you're going to hear it. Yes, 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 that's the gospel. But I'm sorry it wasn't articulated fully for you. Maybe you, maybe you were in kind of the wrong denomination. Let me tell you what that needs to look like now. And even if you did receive saving and mercy at that point, God can't, won't be pleased with you or truly bless you until you kind of add on this. Oh, the same crushing weight of legalism that they settled in Acts 15. Do not succumb to that. We're so skeptical of it's too good to be true. Let me tell a little story. Super Bowl 48 was too good to be true. That's the one the Seahawks thrashed the Broncos. And from section 337, row 5, seat 8, I mean, had I been watching that on TV, I don't know if I would have believed it because I was standing, seeing it before my very eyes thanks to my wife of the year that year. And I think from opening kickoff second half to the end of the game, I stood there with a stupid grin on my face, shaking my head like the entire time, besides the times that I was jumping up and down, high-fiving complete strangers. And the gospel is so much better than that. It's a silly story because it shouldn't even compare. And yet, I, standing there from my seat, which I don't know why I paid for a seat, but standing there, I, I kind of felt responsible, deserving a little bit, Born and raised in Seattle, diehard fan. In 1992, the Seahawks went 2-14. and 14. Every Monday, I got my parents to take me to Les Schwab. No, no, went to Auto. Shucks, Shucks Auto, because they did a photo of the week for the Seahawks. And everyone said, they fought hard, but they lost by three touchdowns. But there was a 
bright color photo and I plastered them all over my wall. See, I, I, I deserved Super Bowl 48. I was partly responsible because I was faithful through thick and thin. And that was my, my, kind of my moment of glory. They haven't thanked me yet, but soon. And see what our, our human heart does? It's good to chuckle about that because the true condition of it is we find where we have earned good things. We almost treat the whole world that way. In order, if, if God has shown favor or blessing, if I have health and I have some abundance, I've done something for it. Others haven't done as much as I have. Flip that over. If I'm not sensing God's favor, blessing, health, abundance, I've, I've not done something. I've failed. I haven't worked as hard as others. God is angry with me. The crushing weight of the yoke that was broken and cast to the side, being mended and repaired and lifted back upon our shoulders by the enemy, by the narrative that runs through our mind, by a culture that continually proclaims you're not enough, hear the gospel, church. Hear it again. Be astonished again. Be humbled again. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It is finished. And the whole church has agreed and proclaimed it throughout history. I think Paul was so adamant in his letter to the Galatians because he saw how that subtle shift could derail everything in the course of history for them. Do not miss it. Do not go back. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the gospel. If a part of it is we don't believe it, there is another part of it that may mean we don't want it to be true. Our desire for it. Because the pride within us does want to be able to earn our salvation. It wants to be responsible. It wants to set ourselves aside as better. It wants to make a name for ourselves and ultimately be able to keep others apart and put upon them their own weight of a journey that we have fulfilled. We have found the path. We have found the way. And if we can do it, if I can do it, what I've overcome, then so can you. And I am not responsible. That pride that lurks within us all. I know what you're thinking, but wait a minute. Didn't they add behavioral requirements here? I've been sitting here this whole time, Ben, saying, you're saying Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And the way that the, the passage concludes, James says, write a letter to tell them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. They added to the gospel. Tune in next week. Say, no, they didn't. They didn't add to the gospel. They actually were writing the first local church membership covenant. We'll talk about the difference, but also the subtleties there that are still significant for us to understand, for full unity to continue. They did not compromise the gospel.
Jesus plus nothing equals everything. How do we bring this home? Jesus extends belonging to us. We see it throughout the Gospels, him extending belonging. Pastor Dan Gregory was here over the summer, summer and used this, the story of Jesus with the woman at the well. He extended belonging to her, welcoming, engagement with her, actually transformed her life before she believed, and then as she was believing, before she behaved. That's Jesus' order throughout the Gospels. He extends belonging, transforms and lives are changed. And that is the mission of the church. To extend belonging, allow Jesus to transform in His way and His timing through the power of the Spirit because the reality is that's true for every one of us. And we are always in the process of believing and behaving as we know He's called us to but we are never earning his belonging. How do we extend this same legalism just by default? I think a good question is, who is, who is at our table? Who is at our table in the church? And who is at our table in our home? Have we extended belonging to those not like us, who don't think like us, look like us, believe like us, behave like us? Do they have belonging at our table? If we've come to receive the gospel and to know it fully and be reminded of it deeply, then we begin to extend that same belonging, trusting Jesus to transform beliefs and behaviors as we continue to proclaim Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We have got to be so counter-cultural that that message gets proclaimed again and again in fullness, in grace, and in truth. The Jerusalem Council settled it, and yet the gospel is still at stake, as it always has been. May we be proclaimers of the whole gospel, the full gospel. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I'll finish with this. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, writing back to another church that was wrestling with similar things and some different things, but he said this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Another way to say Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So that... Your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's where it rests. The power of God working to transform His people into His image because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Invite the team to come up. The important messages are over. Let's sing. Let's praise our God. Let's come to the table. And as you come to the table, it's why this table is open to all who are on a journey to love and follow Jesus as He has loved and pursued them. Because this table represents the table the night before Jesus went to the cross when His disciples were still in process of believing. 
In fact, one of them was about to betray him and walk out the door. One of them that Jesus extended the bread and the wine to, knowing full well where his heart was. The rest would scatter and leave him, fall asleep on him that night while he asked them to pray and stay with him. Would betray him, Peter. Would not believe him that he would rise from the dead as he had said repeatedly. They were in process. If we have been invited to this table, come with that same posture. Jesus, you've extended belonging. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Lord, I know what you've called me to. Help me as I continue to fail in that. For grace abounds. And grace wins. And as we go, we proclaim that same message for those that do not know it. And for those that have heard a different gospel. May we believe it, church. Sing, give, pray, receive, and be blessed in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.